Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy, writer with PharmaTalk. I'm pleased to share a conversation from the Patients as Partners in Clinical Trials Europe 2019 event about the hurdles of sharing patient data with Dr. Natalie Banner from the Wellcome Trust and NCRI's Richard Stevens. The session is called, How Do Patients Become Partners in the Sharing of Data to Advance Science? The Patients as Partners Europe 2020 conference takes place January 27th to the 28th in London. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome to the afternoon session. Another criteria of a good meeting that I have not mentioned to you is how many people stay after lunch in the second day. And I'm very happy to see that many, many still are, although I know some people had to catch trains and planes. So we're now going to dive into another very, very, very important topic, um, and that's data. That's data. Because in the end, you could reduce the industry in pharma industry to a data generation industry. That's essentially what we produce and even what we sell. We don't sell medicines. We sell the data that leads to the use, hopefully the good use of medicine. So data is an incredible, important topic. Today in Europe, we're facing an incredible and increasing tension between two streams. One is that we need data to better public health. As I told you this morning, health inequality in Europe is one of the major issues we have, including with the example in London, I said. And we actually need the data to be able to address these inequalities. But on the other hand, and very frequently on the other, hand of a ve- on the other side of a very fierce debate, is that people say it's my data and only I have the full control over it. And so we're going to explore this. We're going to start first. I'm going to give uh, again Richard, but Richard gets minus two minutes for penalty for running over. Um, so please come. <laughs> Are you going to introduce everybody again? Okay, you can. So welcome Richard back. He knows a lot about that. Oh, you want that one? Okay, good. Uh, is he? You, you're not coming? Oh, okay. Good afternoon, everyone. So I will start my minus two minutes now by telling you very simply we are going to be taking you through some attitudes towards data and some solutions that are being provided by some patient groups somewhere. Okay, I admit it, it's in the UK. However, we're going to do this as a double act, and because data to people like me is magical, I have a magician who's going to be taking us through the first few slides. I am merely the glamorous assistant. So try to hold that thought in your minds. So I'd like to welcome Natalie Banner from Understanding Patient Data. She will explain a little bit more about her role, the organization, what she does, and then she is going to perform magic. No no pressure then whatsoever. Thank you very much for that delightful introduction, Richard. Um, Thank you. Um, As Richard said, my name is Natalie Banner. I lead an initiative called Understanding Patient Data, which is hosted at the Wellcome Trust um, here in London. Um, And our role is to really try and support conversations about the way that data that is collected as part of routine clinical care can be used for purposes beyond care, and particularly for research purposes. Because this is something that actually most people don't really know anything about. Um, And sometimes when they find out about it, they get a little bit scared because they they haven't necessarily consented to this data um, being used. 
Um, and it's a, it's a topic area that has huge importance, particularly as the potential for being able to use real-world data is massively increasing. Advances in data-driven technologies mean that there's going to be so much potential to be able to use data better to help improve health services, to help drive understandings of disease, to develop new treatments, to see if you know, policies are working and that sort of thing. So that's what we've been set up to do. Um, and I thought we'd kick off uh, with a little bit of um, an exploration of some attitudes research that's been done about trust because trust does seem to be really pivotal to this whole conversation about data. Given that people don't necessarily know an awful lot about how data is used, the fact is you've got to have the, a certain level of trust and trustworthiness in what's happening with your data, otherwise you're going to be very upset when you find out that it's being used for all sorts of purposes, even if they're really, really beneficial purposes. So we're going to start off with some, um, some data. Who do we trust with data? This is a survey that was conducted last year um, by YouGov and the Open Data Institute across uh, a variety of European countries. And they asked, um, they asked people, patients, members of the public, uh, what, how they felt about the idea of different organisations, different types of organisations using their data. Did they trust different kinds of organisations with their data? Some interesting results here. You can see that in particular France and Germany generally have kind of lower levels of trust in pretty much everyone. Um, but central government, quite varied, uh, varied levels of trust. But overall, uh, healthcare providers fare pretty well. Um, on average, it seems that across these different countries, healthcare providers are, of all of those types of organisations, central government, online retailers, banks, medical research charities, marketing and advertising firms. If you work for one of those, you've got some work to do. Insurance companies. Healthcare providers are the ones that seem to be most trusted. And this, this holds across, across different countries. So that's a reassuring start, I think. But zooming now back into the UK, specifically where we've done most of our research... It's interesting to see how this relates to the levels of awareness and understanding that people have about the way that their data might be used. You might say that people have trust in their healthcare providers to use their data, but do people actually know anything about how this data is used? So I want to do a quick poll. Um, in a survey of 2,000 members of the general UK public, what proportion said they knew a great deal or a fair amount about how health data is used by A, academic researchers, and B, commercial organisations? So take a look at those numbers. We've got, you know, fairly even, number one, fairly even, but kind of a third academics and commercial organisations, roughly the same level. Two, um, both pretty low. Uh, three, far more about academic researchers than commercial organisations. Or four, more people understanding and knowing about how commercial organisations use it than, than academic researchers, but again, still quite low. Right, hands up. Who's hands up for one? Anyone think it's that number? Roughly a third... Each. Okay, number two. <laughs> Low numbers. Okay, number three. People understand about academic research and 50% of people. Okay, number four. So people are more aware of how commercial organisations might use data. So from the res research we did a couple of years ago, the answer is two. Generally, very, very low awareness about both how academic researchers and commercial organisations might be using data for purposes beyond, uh, beyond care. Um, and because of this general low level of awareness, 
uh, people get a little bit concerned, freaked out, anxious and worried when they learn about the way that data that's collected as part of their healthcare can be used. Now, I know that many of you probably um, involved in clinical trials where you have a specific consent process. People are actively signing up to a study. But given that we're moving to a world where we want to use much, make much better use of routine healthcare data, this is a kind of worrying starting point, right? Because if people don't know anything about how their data is used, it's inevitable that this happens. This, this curve, this spike, it's a little roller coaster. You start off from a point of not knowing very much, but frankly, you don't really care. It's not something that bothers you in your day-to-day -day life. You don't spend a lot of time obsessing and worrying about how your data is used. Now, this might well have changed since GDPR and things like the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. We haven't done any more, much more polling um, since last year when I think people have started to become a bit more aware about data use. But you generally start off not really being particularly fussed by this. You find out a little bit about the fact that your data is being used, uh, data from your health records and so on could be used for research purposes, could be used for planning NHS services, and the response pretty universally is, what? You're doing what with my data? I didn't give permission for this. Who's using it? What are they doing with it? Where's it gone? Um, and the anxiety goes through the roof. And uh, for any of you who uh, are aware of the, the care.data debacle, as it's now officially known, um, that happened in the UK a few years ago, this is the point that, that this, this reached. People found out a little bit about what was happening with their data, but they, the questions weren't answered. They had a lot of anxiety, and questions were not able to be answered about how the data was being used or what it was being used for or how it was being protected. So you hit this real peak of anxiety. However, you do tend to find that if you can provide more information, if you can answer the key questions people have in a way that is understandable and accessible and meaningful to them, that anxiety tends to drop off. And actually, you get to a point where people say, this is great. Why aren't we doing more of this? And you can actually really end up getting a lot of advocacy and championing and support for the use of data if you take people on this journey. And that's a big if, because it's not easy to do. It's not just about providing information and saying, here you go, here's some stuff that explains what happens to data. It's very, very hard, um, and it takes an awful lot of engagement and empathy and energy to do this in a way that's going to be meaningful and understandable for people. And of course, this is a generalization. There are always going to be people who do not want data about them to be used for anything other than their own care. I'm just going to pause here and say, ask if there's any burning questions just about that research or about those insights before I move on to potentially how we can address some of these questions and challenges. Any burning questions? Fantastic. All right. Clear of mud. Great. So, from research that we did um, a couple of years ago, and, and one of the things we do with understanding patient data is we collect and collate public attitudes research that's been done across quite a wide variety of contexts and try and pull out of that what are the key things that people are concerned about? What are the questions they have? What is it that they want to know about data that can then potentially provide reassurance? And from research that we did with Ipsos a couple of years ago, specifically about commercial access to data and attitudes towards that, there were four key things that came out of that. The number one question is why. When you're telling people that actually data you know, from your health record or data that's collected about you could be used for research purposes, what, what does that mean? I, that, does, that has no resonance and no relevance to my life. I don't really, it all feels very abstract. And sadly enough, data can be quite dry, it can be quite technical, it can be very full of jargon. And unless you can make a really compelling case about why this data is valuable and important, you're going to lose people instantly. There has to be a clear public benefit, a benefit to patients, a benefit to society, a benefit to the healthcare service. If you've got that, you know, you're, you're on your way. 
if there is solely a commercial benefit or a commercial uh, motive behind the use of the data, you are never going to get that acceptance. Like, there has to be some balance. And people are very capable of engaging with that balance and saying, well, actually, of course, you know, companies exist to make money. Of course they do. But if they can bring innovations and benefits to the health service and to patients, we accept that there might be some commercial elements of this. Um, but you do have to sort of go on that, on that journey in explaining, explaining those things. Um, and the second one, very closely after the why, is the who. So who is doing this? And, and this comes down to you know, being clear about the kinds of organisations you're talking about. If you talk about commercial companies as an abstract, it doesn't. People just, you know, feel a bit feel a bit um, unsure. But what kinds of organisations? If it's pharmaceutical industry, if it's tech organisations, if it's software companies, uh, people who are helping NHS trusts or the healthcare system understand their patient pathways better. You know, it helps to be specific about the who. The what kind of data comes next. So it's really hard for a lot of people, understandably, to engage with what you mean by your data or data about you. And there's kind of visions of like an entire manila envelope of records that are being passed over to some mysterious faceless entity. And actually, if you're talking about kind of diagnostic codes, say actually it's not, you know, your name and address information isn't included, that sort of thing. It really helps to be able to articulate what kind of data you're talking about here. And finally, the how. Interestingly, the sort of protection and, and how the data is looked after is almost considered a hygiene factor. It's something that people take for granted. They assume that someone is making sure that this stuff is being well protected and that there's someone whose responsibility it is to make decisions about how this data is used. But it's not necessarily something that's top of mind for people. So talking about the security and, and how the data is protected matters, but actually getting clearer on the, the whys and the, and, the, and the who's using this data um, seems to be more important. So what are we doing about trying to address some of these questions and some of these challenges? Uh, because it's not easy to talk about this. The healthcare system is phenomenally complex. The use of data is incredibly difficult to explain. Even something like, is your data identifiable, is not something that can be answered in a tweet, unfortunately. It's really complicated. It's full of grey areas. So what we've done at Understanding Patient Data is try to create some, uh, some resources and some tools, all of which are available on our website with a, free, with a Creative Commons license. Anyone's free to use them, adapt them, modify them, make them relevant for your own context. Uh, we've included this patient data wheel, visual aids. I should get my glamorous assistant to, to show it. To show it. Which just, uh, it's a simple way of showing and demonstrating what the different uses of patient data are in language that we've road tested uh, with lots and lots of different audiences to try and make it as clear and accessible as possible, but without dumbing it down. So it's got quite a lot of detail, but it's also sort of simple, accessible language. We've produced a series of animations that show uh, how data is actually used for purposes beyond care, for diabetes, asthma, cancer, heart attack, um, and dementia, which is the one I always forget. Um, and they're just you know, sort of short two-minute animations that explain and show a patient journey through the system and how their data is used both to provide their own care but also to develop research that can then help other people. And this one on the bottom right is the identifiability spectrum, you know, trying to answer this question, is, this, is, is my data identifiable? This is not an easy question to answer. So we've produced some nice visual tools that help explain this in a slightly more accessible and understandable way. I'm going to hand over to Richard now, who's going to talk a little bit more about uh, how uh, to engage with patients and partners 
uh, in the development of these kind of tools. But before I do, I just want to say that as part of understanding patient data, the thing that matters to us most is to make things that are going to be useful and usable and consistent and provide messaging and uh, resources that can really help people engage with this stuff. It's not easy to engage with kind of these concepts around data. But actually, we found that the more you make an effort to uh, to work with people at different levels and provide resources that are going to be meaningful and accessible, you get so much out of that in return. And um, We couldn't have developed the animations that we did without 150 or so people helping us do that and explaining to us what they wanted to know and what mattered to them. I think this is a theme that Richard will pick up now. Thank you. Thanks very much. Wasn't that magical? It was. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, why not? Come on, we haven't finished yet. Good, that saves me a little bit of time. Um, right, well, the slide there says everything you need to know. Uh, Use My Data is a patient-led movement of patients who are actually interested in the idea that the data we collect in the United Kingdom, most especially in our healthcare services, but also from clinical trials, from things like disease registration, particularly in cancer, that actually it should all be linked up. It should be used for legitimate, ethically approved medical health research for the benefit of all patients in the UK, and actually, why not globally, for the benefit of patients everywhere. So there is this patient-led movement, and you can go on their website and find out a little bit more about them. Uh, please do. It is cross-disease. A lot of cancer patients are in it, but it is a cross-disease group. One of the things that Use My Data came up with was this. It's a couple of pictures, and this was actually presented to the European Parliament during the discussions about what eventually became the GDPR. And this was seen as a desirable thing about data. The idea is, of course, that when you lose a loved one, which is what a lot of patients and carers get involved in research to try to prevent, but when you lose a loved one, one of the things you do is you take their clothes to a charity shop. One of the things that you do or the charity shop does is you go through all the pockets. You take out all the name tags. You take out the stuff that links that perfectly usable clothing to the person who has just passed on, or in my case, the person who is just now too big to fit into the old jacket. You know, let's be honest, there is that going on as well. And then they're put on display, and people go in there, and they have a look at what the jackets and the trousers and the skirts are available, and they pick the ones they want, but they cannot identify where it came from. And that's, that's the whole point, and this was a patient-devised example to explain to other patients. It also then provoked discussions, because what happens when you take it home? I mean, first of all, someone buys it, it's not given away, so someone's paying for it. And then they take it out of the shop, and you don't know what they're going to do with it. So this is where the analogy with data starts to raise really interesting questions. Do you put guards on the shop door to stop people taking it out? That's daft. Do you actually charge people? How much do you charge people? Do you charge some people and not other people? And when you're matching your jacket and trousers, linking the data, what then do you do? Do you do it with all the others, or do you do it, do it for one suit? Because it gets patients talking. So I will stop talking and move on to another one. UK cancer data. Well, of course I was going to mention this. 
We have a culture in UK cancer where we do have a national registration system. We do now have the ability to opt out and people are told explicitly they can opt out, but it's usually round about the time they're also told their diagnosis, so they take not a blind bit of notice or they choose not to opt out. So we have a data-driven community, which is, which is cancer patients. And there's a couple of things on there I mentioned in my talk this morning. One of the interesting things about collecting all this data is that we now have a requirement in our national cancer strategy that we will start using it as a nation. And that cancer patient experience, if you're running trials, the quality of life, the patient reported outcomes, the patient reported experiences, they are now as important as clinical outcomes. This is not yet getting through to people who still design trials with outcomes that are progression-free survival. Actually, what we want, if we have to have progression-free survival, is the quality of life indicator on a par. But the cancer patient experience, now that 50% of cancer patients are surviving for more than 10 years, is, more, is as important as the clinical outcome. And we want data-driven issues about follow-up. What is it particular patients get what are the treatments doing? What are the side effects? What are the late effects? What comes back 10, 15, 20 years to, to haunt people? So there, there are issues there. And again, cancer patients beginning to campaign to make use of the data that we have collected for donkey's years and haven't yet started to use as well as we should. And then there's the new stuff. And this is really innovative. The UK's 100,000 genome project has patients sitting on the data access committee and they don't let the data out of the door. You have to go in through a computer embassy to get at it and it is the participants. It is the people whose genomes have been sequenced who actually get to see all the applications to see that data and they sit around with the researchers, with the people at Genomics England uh, and from April with the people from the National Health Service Genomics Medicine team and they actually get to say who gets the access. And at the moment, they are really keen for people to have access, but because it's all, all just beginning, the patients and the participants have introduced a one-year checkup. So if they haven't heard from the researchers one year after they've been allowed access, the Access Review Committee will actually contact them and say, how far have you got with your project? Not what have you done with our data, but how far have you got with the project? Where's this going? How can we help you? Do you need more samples? You know, tell us what we can do to help. But it's this increasing grasp, especially people with rare genetic conditions, that actually we now have massive new opportunities ahead of us if only we start to learn to share and to use data. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from Patients as Partners Europe 2019. The 2020 conference takes place January 27th and 28th in London. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.